So last week we had uh, 755 people make a commitment uh, to to spend time in the next 40 days in God's Word, which is pretty exciting. It was a little bit overwhelming, uh, the response. I hope that you have not been, uh, uh, I hope you've been successful in that. I hope it's not been discouraging. I know that whenever you jump into something like this and two or three days into it, you fail, you feel like, okay, I'm disillusioned, I'm discouraged, I'm just going to throw in the towel, I can't even make it a week, I'm a horrible Christian, I mean, I go to hell right now, all that kind of stuff goes through your mind. That was a joke, okay, you don't want, you don't want to say that. Uh, but you're, you're, you're thinking, okay, I just can't do this, I can't, I can't, I can't do this, this, this commitment, it's another New Year's resolution in the pot, and, uh, and really, It's one of those things that you're going to struggle. This is war, if you remember me saying that last week. This is not going to be easy. This is going to be a challenge. You are going against the tide of your broken heart and of this world. And so it's going to challenge you to the very end. But I've had some amazing conversations with some people this week. Just amazing. Emails, conversations, phone calls. One I had over lunch at sushi with a, with, a, with a guy earlier on this week, and he told me his story and the broken pieces of all of his story growing up and what he went through and the shatteredness of it all. And it was just, I was blown away as he was telling it to me and walked me through that, that, that life journey and how he came to faith in Christ. He said, but I've never read the Bible. He said, I've been a Christian for a number of years, but I've never read the Bible and so this is the first time he's in the Word, and it's, it's, it's impacting him even in the first week. Another one of our members posting on Facebook, you know, that great gossip thing out there that we, that we get on and creep people and all that kind of stuff. Well, he posted on Facebook that, that uh, he was reading the 40 day in, in the Bible for 40 days, and a Mormon friend of his actually saw that and also wanted to take on that similar challenge. So there are people of other faiths actually hearing the challenge. Another uh, person came to an atheist actually came to one of our pastoral team members heard about the challenge was interested in taking on the challenge themselves they're journeying through their own faith this is a perfect time to try to figure out whether or not there's a god out there and, and, and all that so i thought it's pretty cool that that again atheists mormons uh, uh people believers who've never read the scriptures before getting into this I actually got a call on tuesday from the arkansas democrat gazette wanting to interview me about what was happening with the spiritual discipline of Bible reading in our church. I think the article was in yesterday's paper. I haven't even read it myself. But it's just exciting to think that, that God might use this ancient book that has a lot of dust in a lot of people's homes on it, uh, that it might awaken something inside of them for the very first time. Uh, or maybe it renews something inside of them. You know, they, they say dust on the Bible typically means a drought in the heart. And so if there is dust on your Bible, then it probably doesn't bode very well. So it's exciting to hear the various stories that, I, that, I, that I've heard this week. And the Bible is a transforming element of God's plan, all right? Uh, it's a transforming element, and the world knows that. There are places in this world that this book is not allowed. I was actually in a country not too long ago and passed through immigration, got to customs, and this was the sign that was greeting me at customs to walk into the country. Couldn't take narcotics. That's good. Appreciate that. Pornography was off limits. But notice number three, materials contrary to the Islamic belief. So that would be this book right here. They literally said we were advised that if we brought in one, it might be okay. They might not say anything about it. But if you brought in two, you could find yourself in a heap of trouble. It's an Islamic nation under Sharia law. 
this book is not welcomed in certain places of the world. In fact, Malaysia, uh, not too long ago, a couple of years ago, allowed for the importation of 35,000 copies of the Bible. But when it got to the border, when it got to uh, customs again to get into the country, they banned them. They said, no, you cannot bring it. It's a largely Islamic nation as well, and you cannot bring Bibles into the country. People began, the, 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 the Bible Society of Malaysia began to kind of give a little bit of an uproar about it, and they said, hey, you said we could, now we can't, what's the deal here? They made a concession that if you will print in uh, in the flyleaf of every Bible, these words that this book, uh, the good news of the Bible is to be used by Christians only, then you can have it. And not only that, they then imprinted a serial code on every single Bible. Now, this is not something that happened years ago. This is something that just happened. And 35,000 Bibles have a serial code on it so that the government can track where the Bibles are. This is a country that we live in. This is not a country that we live in. And we live in a country where we can have as many Bibles as we want. I have more Bibles in my office than some of these nations have. And how sad is that when we can't get even followers of Christ to crack it open and to read it? We put the challenge out there that you might get into this challenge and read from this sacred book and what is sacred about it. And there's lots of different things you're going to hear me refer to as sacred writings. And there's lots of different phrases out there. The Bible is, is really what we're saying. We say all of them, God's law, scripture, um, commandments, principles, precepts, prophets, the word, the gospel, proverbs, all these are, are references to this one book of 66 books. All right, so I'm going to use that almost any of those subconsciously even interchangeably. So as you hear that, and even today, we're going to use one called sacred writings or scripture. We're going to see it used interchangeably. It's referring to this book that I hold in my hand. Now, if you weren't here last week, the challenge was put out there that you start 2015 with a new paradigm. And you have to establish a new paradigm, not just a New Year's resolution, but a new paradigm would be that you would allow the Scriptures to begin to shape your life by taking a 40-day challenge. And if you saw that last week, it was that you would just read a chapter a day, just one chapter a day. You can read more if you want, but a chapter a day is what you would read from that book. Then you would record one truth. It might be literally verbatim from the passage. It may be a truth that God gives you through that passage. But we gave out journals last week to anybody who would take on that challenge. Again, 755 of these went out. And so as you take that on, then you would take that recorded truth and you would realign your life according to it. It's not enough to put it up here. All right. You got to put it here and you got to put it there. It's got to begin to shape the way you live. You've got to start realigning your life. And that was the challenge that we put out there. 40 days. Can you do that? Would you do that? Would you do it for 35 of those 40 days? Whatever. Put it out there. Is it really a secret 40 days? What's secret about 40 days? And really, I want you to do it for 40 years. But I knew if I said, would you do it for 40 years, all my books would still be up here on the stage. So 40 days. We'll take 40 days at a time, all right? And then we'll recommit after after that for 40 more days. Uh, but just take it one day at a time. Because really, realizing that 21 days is what it takes to create a habit. 21 days it takes to break a habit. So if we're taking 40 days and we're committing ourselves to this, then we're literally trying to put ourselves in a position 
to where we will create a new habit, a new manner of life so that now when the kids come in and they see mom, dad with their Bibles open and their journals open, they'll begin to make the registration. Okay, this is a sacred moment for mom and dad. My little issue with big brother, big sister can wait. Uh, We can start setting guidelines in our home the way we're going to live because we are spending time in his word by a totally different paradigm. So take your Bibles today. Let's look at this book and let's look at one of the books of the 66 at the book of Second Timothy. Second Timothy is one of Paul's writings. Paul wrote most of the New Testament. And in this book, it's one of the three uh, letters that he wrote to pastors. It's called the pastoral letters. And in these letters, he writes them to these pastors, Titus being one, Timothy being the other. He writes two to Timothy, and he writes these letters to them to keep them on track. Now, one of the things you've got to see about all Christendom, all right, about all the Christian faith, and you've got to see it about, about Paul as a great example of it, is there's always, listen, a protege-mentor relationship going on. There's always somebody pouring into someone else. Someone helping someone else grow up in the faith. Someone helping someone else become more mature in the faith. Paul is doing it constantly. He's having it done to him by people like Priscilla and Aquila and Barnabas. But he's also passing it on to others. He does it with Silas. He does it with Onesimus. He does it with a guy named Mark who actually at one point they have their outs and they split ways. But then you read on later on in Colossians chapter 4 verse 10 and 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 11. You find that John, Mark and Paul have reunited and John and, or excuse me, Paul values John, Mark. So there's a, there's a reuniting again, protege, mentor relationship going on. But one of the ones that we get a lot of attention from because it's so clear is Paul and Timothy. Because there's two books written to Timothy or two letters written to Timothy. But not only that, Timothy takes on the pastoring role of the church at Ephesus. Paul spent more time at Ephesus than he did any other church. He spent a lot of time in different places, but more time, three years total, in the church at Ephesus pouring into the people. So let's listen in on a personal letter from Paul, from Paul, mentor, to protege Timothy as he's trying to bring him up. Now, when we do this... We're going to jump into a hot scene, okay? And it's because he's talking about persecution. He's talking about deception. He's talking about what's going on out in the world. He's saying, listen, you're going to have to be careful, Timothy. You're going to get sucked in to the world. But what I, I, I want you to pay attention. I don't want you to be like that. So here you jump into verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, a godly life in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. Now, there's an entire message right around that verse alone. Verse 13. While evil people, imposters, will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I cannot emphasize how much deception, how much lying, how much falsity, how much, how much fallacy is going on in the first century. How much fake Christianity is that's out there? I cannot go into it. But Timothy, please, 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 don't get sucked in. In fact, he goes on and he says in verse 15, and how from, excuse me, verse 14, but as for you, this is where he gets personal, as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood, 
You have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ uh, Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. You might circle those four words. We'll come back to them. Teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent or complete, equipped for every good work. Why is it, and some of y'all may be saying this seven days into a 40-day challenge, Mike, why is it that I really need to, to read the Word? Why is it that I really need to be studying the Scriptures? Why, why, why? That's a legitimate question. And why didn't I ask that last week? Because I wanted to get a week under your belt. I wanted you to experience the Scriptures in, in all of its raw, unadulterated form, all of the tension in the battle spiritually in your own heart, all the struggle to do it every day and to change patterns in your life so that you would feel that coming back in here and going, why did I commit? Can I turn my journal back in? If you've already written in it, no, you can't. Uh, but the point being is that there is a there has to be a why. What's the why behind this? Why would I do this? Why would I commit to this? Why would I take this on? Paul answers that with Timothy. He tells him the why and the value of Scripture and not getting sucked into all the other beliefs that that are out there. And the why, the reasons, I'm going to give you three reasons why we need to be in the Word today. Now, these three reasons are going to be the three ways we're going to study the Scripture tonight. If you're a part of the Bible study methods class, then we're going to talk about and use these same three words there. So here's the first reason this morning. Insight from God or insight from the Bible leads us to new life. Insight from the Bible will lead us to new life. All these lies were circulating. All this deception was going on out there. You got to pick which, what track you're going to be on. You got to, uh, you got to pick your truth or your lies and you got to really, really uh, decide which way you're going to go. And what Paul does to Timothy says, hey, listen to this. You learned it. You, you formally believed it. You, you firmly believed it, excuse me. You were acquainted with the sacred writings. You know who taught you these things. He kind of says, listen, you were grounded. There was a foundation. How from childhood you've been acquainted with these things. This stuff's solid. You built your life on this. See, what happens in the rabbinic traditions of, of, of Hebrew Jewish faith, when you turn five, listen, dads, the father had a tremendous responsibility all of a sudden that he had to grow into. He was the one who dispensed the faith. He was the one who would sit down with the children and give out the faith and the lessons and the truth from God's Word. At the age of five, Now, we get a little bit of a picture into Timothy's life, and we find out who was his influencer early on. In in 2 Timothy 1, verse 5, it says this, I remember your genuine faith, for you share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois. You share the faith that your grandmother had and your mother Eunice. And I know the same Faith continues strong in you. Now, I want us to learn something here in this. There's a powerful, powerful lesson in this. This is multiple generations of a faith 
being rooted into the next generation, into the next generation. And Mother Eunice made sure that she got the faith into her children. Now, you say, hold on, I thought this was the dad's responsibility. We don't know anything about Timothy's family. All we know is his grandmother and his mother. We don't know if dad died. We don't know if granddad is not on the scene. We don't, we don't know anything. All we know is that mom, parents, and grandparents knew they had a responsibility to get the faith into the next generation. It was their role. It was their responsibility. They had to get it in there. Listen, we got some great things happening next door and, and just on the other side of that wall with We World and, and Planet Kids, and we want to compliment. We want to teach your children. Listen, and some of y'all just came out from teaching over there. We still have teaching positions over there because we want to pour in. It's not a babysitting role at all. It's a role where we want to teach the children. But I want you to notice this. When you think back to Lois, when you think back to Eunice, don't get caught up in the crazy names, okay? They're a little dated, I know. Unless your name is Eunice or Lois, sorry. <laughs> All right, I'll get hate emails on that one. But, um, but notice how there was a mother who was very intentional to make sure the son got what he needed. And notice this, that there was a grandmother who made sure that her grandson got what he needed in the faith. We want to set up in systems and environments in we world and playing kids where moms and dads, just like you, and where grandparents can go in there and pour into the next generation one day a week, just one day a week, for one hour a week. But you know, let me say this. I'm going to put a disclaimer on this. There is not enough time in one hour. There's not enough things we can do in one hour. Parents, moms, dads, grandparents, we got a role to play here in making sure our children get the faith that they need. Because they're going to be like Timothy one of these days and they're going to step back out into this mean, evil world. And you know what? There's going to be deceptions and lies all about them. And they can choose this path or that path. And how well they have firmly been grounded in the faith will determine how well they handle life. So what are they grounded in? Notice what he said. In the sacred writings. The sacred writings. That's what he said there in verse um, verse 15. They were grounded in the sacred The sacred writings, what is that? It's clearly the Old Testament at least because they were from a Jewish origin. So it's the Old Testament, the same Old Testament that we have. But I actually also believe, and so do other scholars, that it was also referring to the Gospels. The Gospel accounts were already in circulation, had been so for about a decade. Second Timothy is written about 68 A.D. The Gospels were written in the late 50s A.D. They were already in circulation. People were reading stories about Jesus. They were hearing about his resurrection. There were eyewitnesses telling them what they had seen. And this faith was being passed on. These sacred writings were being read. And that's what Timothy's foundation was built on. That's what his faith grew through. What happens when somebody's life is built on the sacred writings, or as we call it, the Bible? He goes on to say, which are able, and here's where insight comes in, which are able to make us wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. See, 
this book has a transforming power to give us the wisdom, the insight we need to make our way to salvation, to make our way to a Savior, or to see how the Savior's made His way to us. Listen, you can, you can not read this book, and you can put it behind your back, you can be ignorant about it, and you might believe there's a God out there. But you need the special revelation of God's Word to show you the way to salvation in faith in Christ Jesus Christ. In, G- in Jesus Christ. Beautiful challenge came out this week. Again, 755 of you took the challenge. I love one story that came in by email, and uh, I've asked permission to share it, and they've been given that. And it's just a beautiful story about a little girl named Elizabeth, eight years old, and how she got in the car last week with mom, dad, and brother, and they had some bright, shiny journals. They had three of them, not four of them. And uh, she wanted to know what was the, the, the thing going on here. And so they explained the 40-day challenge. And she wanted to know, first of all, why didn't I get a journal? And then number two, I want to do the same challenge. I love it. An eight-year-old who wasn't even in big church that day, here's the challenge and wants to take on the challenge. So she answers that call, goes home and starts her own little journal. And you can see it there. And she writes in it. And the second day, I think it was, she she read from Psalm 139. I challenged everyone to read from Psalms last week if you didn't have a plan already. So she read from Psalm 139. You know, Psalm 139, it's where it talks about you being fearfully and wonderfully made and how God knew you in the womb before you were ever brought into existence. And with her permission, I'm going to show you her journal because I said write down one insight from what God gives you on that day and what he teaches you on the day. So look at her journal entry. Psalm 139, it tells me that the Lord knows my one and every thought right before I even think it. He knew what it was going, what I was going to look like before my mom was pregnant with me and that I can not hide from him. I love the P.S. And that makes me feel good. Isn't that beautiful? An eight-year-old. I'm not mystical. I'm spiritual. I'll bet my life on it. My eight-year-old heard from God that day. And she wrote it down and she recorded it. And it made her feel good. Now, it's not all about feeling good. But for an eight-year-old, if it just gives you a little bit of confidence that God knows me, loves me, has a plan for my life, and he knew me before I was ever created, that is helping that child grow wise in salvation. Isn't it a beautiful thing? That's what Scripture will do, is it gives us the insight to living a life that is full and that is rich and that is full and complete. Number two, instruction in the Bible gives us divine direction. This book is not just here to make us smarter. It's here to change our life. This, this book is unique, unlike any other book. You can take Plato's writings, the complete work of Plato's writings. You can take your latest Joel Olstein book, and you cannot stack it next to this book. You can take the Book of Mormon. You can take the Quran. You cannot put it next to this book. This book stands alone. I know I'm standing here prejudiced about that. I know that I come with a very narrow mind on that, but I think there's some legitimacy to it. I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to, 
substantiate that today, that I believe that this book is superior to all other spiritual books. And I don't need to have another book to help me to understand this book. I don't even need Mike McDaniel. You don't need to hear from me or any other preacher out there to hear from God. You need this book. This is your key to getting and hearing the instruction that God wants to give. It's time-tested. It's it's life proven. It's historically accurate. It is not a science book, but when it speaks to science, it is a hundred percent accurate in in those regards. It has survived the persecution of unbelievers, the skepticism of non-believers, and is and sadly the neglect of believers. It is a book that has gone through the generations. It is unique. In fact, Noah Webster, when he was writing the first English dictionary that we would even look at today as kind of the first American dictionary, and even his name on every dictionary almost ever since, of the English language of America, when he was writing the word unique, the definition for the word unique, it has been told that he was literally thinking of this book. How is this book unique? He wrote this definition for the word unique, one and only, single soul, different from all others, having no like or equal. You can doubt it, you can deny it, you can try to destroy it, but it is invincible and it is indestructible. It is the inspired Word of God. It is something you can build your life on. Now, I realize in a day and age when there's not, listen, there's not been very many Loises or Eunices out there helping the next generation get it, or we haven't done a very good job at it, then what happens then is the next generation comes behind us and they don't believe it. In fact, you ask the millennial generation today, and Barna has done that, what they believe about this book, 50% of them, half the population of the younger generation coming up, thinks this is nothing more than a storybook. I want to say it's more, it's full of stories, but it's more than that. It is the inspired Word of God. Notice what it says in verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, every one of the writers of the, of the 1500 year span that it was written, over 40 generations, three different continents, 40 uh, different authors, three different languages of Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, all of this com- combined together to make 66 books was breathed out by God. Now, does it mean that Paul didn't have his personality and this ink pen just kind of, no, not at all. He had his personality. Moses had his personality. Daniel had his personality. Nehemiah had his personality. And you can see it built into it. But it was beautiful how God inspired them forward to write, giving them right down to the words on what to write. Peter said it like this. Peter, being one of the writers of the New Testament, said, first of all, you should know this. No prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. Because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It is not divine to impress us. It is divine to direct us. The Word of God is given from God to man for us to direct us.
And you think, okay, Mike, I can accept that this book is inspired by God. We can talk about to what degree. I'm going to believe it down to the words that was given to the original authors. But we'll, t- we'll, we'll just leave it out there like that. So what? So what? It's profitable, he said. He said, all scriptures God breathed. Now notice that word, and you might underscore it. It's profitable. He gets into our minds and he says, listen. This book has some value add to your life. It has a bottom line addition, not subtraction. It's not going to lead you astray. This book, you will find your life more full, more complete, more abundant because you have been a part of this book and this book has been a part of you. Again, it's not some rote memory. It's not just some going to class, some catechism. You go through and you tick it off. It is something that becomes a part of you. And when it does, listen, listen, the word is it will be profitable. What kind of profit does it give you? Does it give you dollars and cents in your account? Well, it could save some, a lot of mistakes in your life that could save you from having to bail yourself out of a lot of mistakes. So yeah, I could put dollars and cents in your, in your bank account. There are four points of profit, if you will, from the scriptures here. And you circle them as I read them. Profitable four. He tells us what? First of all, profitable for teaching. He tells us what's right. This book tells us what's right. Wouldn't it be great? An ounce of prevention is worth what? A pound of cure. If we knew what was right before we got into the wrong compromising situation, wouldn't it be great if I knew what was right in that relationship over here before I got stupid over here? All right? It would save a whole lot of headache. So if I will get the programming down on the front end, it will save a whole lot of mistakes on the back end. It helps me to know what's right. That's why it's so important for your children and my children and our children to have Lois's and Eunice's pouring into them. Who's, who, who, who are you taking your faith and pouring it into? Who's pouring into you? It is a protege-mentor relationship throughout Scripture. And we need people in our lives teaching us the truth of Scripture so that we'll know what is right. But the second thing he tells us it will do, it gives us reproof. Reproof or rebuking. It tells us when you're wrong. Listen, we need people in our life. We need truth in our life who will call us out. He'll say, no, 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 not so fast. You go this track, you're going to end up destroying this. You can't, you do that, these are the consequences that will come. We need people in our life. There are times I'm going to open this book and it's going to bring me great comfort. Isn't that beautiful? Now listen to this. There are going to be times I'm going to open this book and it's going to bring me great discomfort. Because it's going to look at my life and it's going to measure it out. And it's not going to look pretty. There are times that I need to be told, Mike, you're wrong. You're on the wrong track. Here's a life principle for you about this book. Scripture comforts the afflicted and it afflicts the comforted. There are times that you need to open this book and it needs to say, you need to get off that track and you need to get on this track. 
Now, I know a lot of people look at this book and they say, oh, it's just a book of a bunch of don'ts. It's trying to rob all the joy of your life. And really, my friends, it's not. It's trying to add joy to your life. When it says don't, thou shalt not, it's trying to say don't hurt yourself. When it says thou shalt, it says go bless yourself. And we've got to read it in its totality because it is trying to put us on the right track. It's trying to get us off the wrong track at times. It's trying to keep us on the right track. But here's number three. It's also going to correct us. It's going to tell us how to get right. So if we've gotten wrong, it's going to help us to get right again and to get on the right track. I love that about the Word of God. Is that not only is this book out there trying to correct our, 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 our stupidity, but it's also going to help us to live a life. I want to say something in this room. And I'm not using a lot of examples, but I want to speak to this section. I want to speak to this section, this section, and this section. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. I, I don't know who I'm saying this to. Some of y'all, you are doing things that you know are wrong. You don't need a counselor to tell you that. You don't need a close friend to tell you that. You just know it. It's wrong. And you may be getting by with it, and nobody knows it. Not your, not, not, not your mom, your dad, not your, not your husband, your wife, not your children. They don't know about it, but, but you know about it. And what I'm saying in this is not to condemn, but to correct. Get on the right track. Get off that dumpster fire that's about to happen because it will happen. How do I do that, Mike? That's the beauty of this book. If I keep reading it and I keep writing and I keep journaling and I keep recording and I keep realigning my life, I'm going to find nuggets of truth every time I open it. And I'm going to find this little book way back in the New Testament called 1 John. And this little book's going to read one little chapter in that book. And I'm going to come to this verse, verse 9, one of the first verses I've memorized. This is this, if, I, if we confess our sins, He is faithful. And by the way, confession means I'm agreeing with God. God, that's wrong. I'm so sorry. I shouldn't be doing that. Shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't be about to do that. Whatever it is. If, I confess my, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us, to make us whole and right again. That's what God wants to do in our life through His Word, through His Spirit, through the working inside of us. But here's the the beautiful fourth profit you get from the Scriptures is you get training. You get training on knowing how to stay right. So it doesn't just show you what's right, show you what's wrong. And show you how to get right again. It, 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 this is the proactive part. Okay, I've been burned. I'm not going to do that again. How do I not do that again? Whatever that is. And getting on the right track. Psalm 119, verse 18. It'll be a great verse for all of you to read tomorrow morning or tonight or whenever it is that you have your time with God and His Word. If you read this as your prayer. Open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things out of your law. Open my eyes. God, I want to see... I want to see what you want to say. I want, I want to hear it. I want to respond to it. What is the insight you want to give me? What's the instruction I need to obey? What is it that you are uh, about here? 
I love, again, hearing of so many of our people doing so much uh, in their own families, even the Oglesby family. I think they're in the room today. And, and how their family is, is cutting down that social media or television or whatever. Jason was telling me on Wednesday night, he's leading his entire Communitas group to, again, do the 40 days. And how he is a family. They're sitting down two teenage boys, and everybody's having their time with their own private times with God in the journal. Listen, that's what it's going to take revolutionizing our families one heart and individual at a time. Number three, it inspires us to live a life at the fullest. Verse 17 gives us the final reason why in this passage, that so that the man of God, the woman of God, you ever considered yourself a man or woman of God? so that the man of God may be competent or complete, equipped for every good work. The benefits, let's, let's reverse engineer our lives for just a moment, if you will. I want to be a man of God. I was going to say I want to be a woman of God, but that wouldn't be right. You might want to be a woman of God. What, what's that going to take? It's going to take time in the sacred writings. It's going to take allowing the Word of God to reshape and reform and realign my life. And then all of a sudden, I'm going to find my life, first of all, it's going to be more complete. Second, second, I'm going to find myself more equipped. I'm going to find myself becoming what it says in verse 17. More equipped, more complete, I want to give you a verse. It's our verse to memorize this next week. I hope you'll memorize it with me. We memorized Colossians 3:16 last week. We're doing sec, excuse me, we're doing John 17:17 17, 17 this week. All right, little phrase, but powerful. It's a prayer actually of Jesus. He's sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Let's think about each word, phrase by, word by word. Sanctify. What does that mean? Make right, make whole, make righteous, make make holy. It's that being that man of God. I want to be a, a man of God, thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. That's what he just said in verse 17. I want to be sanctified. I want to be holy. I want to be made right. So sanctify, what does he say next? Them. Sanctify them. Sanctify them. Who's them? Them are all of his believers. This is the real Lord's Prayer. This is where Jesus really prayed the prayer for his disciples. God sanctify them. How do you do that? You sanctify them in the truth. Now notice it's a very direct object there. Very, very much there is a truth out there. This world will tell you that there is no truth. There's real, truth is relative. There's no absolute truth. Listen, there is truth. We've got to find that truth. We've got to know that truth. And God, I want you to sanctify them in the truth. And where is that truth? Where do I find that truth? Thy word is truth. Your word is truth. This book is truth. So would you say it with me? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now take it away, guys. Say it with me again. John 17, 17. Sanctify. The word of God wants to transform. Be a part of the transforming effect of your life. I read a story not long ago on Emil Chalet. A Frenchman who went to French University and grew up an agnostic. 
And literally, it said, he said he graduated from college, listen, in France, having never even seen this book before, didn't even know what it was. Becomes a philosophy professor later on in life at Princeton University, very educated, very, very intelligent. But prior to becoming a professor, he was enlisted in World War I goes to battle and experiences loss of a very close friend while on the phone, his friend was on the phone while receiving a bullet to the chest and killing him on the spot. He watched it happen. He too got shot and ended up in the hospital. Finding himself in the hospital, finding himself looking out at life, finding him in philosophy, finding him reading literature. He said he was on the quest for a book, listen, that would understand him. Not that he would understand it, but he wanted a book that would understand him. He could not find one. He began to take a journal much like your little black shiny journal here. And began to record all the philosophical statements, all the prose, all the poetry, everything that he could record to think about during different seasons of his life. And finally, as he was older on in, in years, he took his book one day, went out into his garden, sat underneath a tree, and began to read through all the wisdom that he had collected through the few years of his life. Only to close it, disheartened and disappointed. He said it took him back to every one of the mishaps, every one of the bad decisions, every one of the empty moments of his own life, and he made it relive him. He relived him in his mind again. He goes in the house. His wife just comes back from walking. It sounds like I'm walking their dog, but they were out walking her child and with her child. Comes back in and has a book that was given to her while she was walking in the streets of France. A minister had given her a French Bible. He takes it and picks it up and begins to read it. He opens it up to the middle, practically in the middle, to the Gospels. I don't know if it was Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, but he opens it up to the Gospels and he begins to read the Gospels. And all of a sudden, he fell in love with the man that was in the Gospels. The man of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, the center of the story, and he could put the book down. And in his own words, this is what he said, Lo and behold, as I looked through them, the Gospels, the one who spoke and acted in them became alive in me. This is the book that would understand me. This is the book that would understand me. My friends, this is more than just a book of stories. It's a book that understands you. For some of us today, the greatest thing that could happen in the next remaining 40 days is that our souls will be awakened because we will find in the pages of this book a book that will read us as much as we read it. A book that will teach us, reprove us, correct us, and train us. A book that will help our generation, and the next generation find a firm footing to build its life on. We need an awakening in the Word. We need an awakening with Christ. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, this is more than an academic exercise. 
This is more than a challenge to just do busy religious work and activity. We need to hear words breathed out by God Himself. Words that will transform, that will enlighten. Words that will waken us from our sleep and our lostness. Words that will free us, Lord. Words that will give us life. Or would you awaken us spiritually? And those who have been asleep for months and years and have lost their joy and delight in your word, Lord, would you renew that again? Would you help every person in this room that does not know you, Lord, find as that philosopher from Princeton found that you, Lord, are real, you are alive, you are reading us, and you are ready to to change us and make us your children. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing with us this prayer of awakening?